The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land. Sounds like the book of Numbers, doesn't it? Where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Okay, new book of the Bible. Did anybody here enjoy Esther? Yes. I got to tell you what, I'll never read that book the same way again. What's that? Wow, I'm telling you, I'll never look at that book the same way, but the same thing with Leviticus. I mean, I already was excited about Leviticus, and, but once we got through it, I thought, I'm going to miss this book, and I feel the same about Esther now. I'm just going to miss it. So here we are. We're in the book of Numbers, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 19. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying... Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, every male individually from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. Verse 5, these are the names of the men who shall stand with you from Reuben, Elitzur, the son of Shedeur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zurashaddai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Nathanel, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. From Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Padazur. From Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahizer, the son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okron. From Gad, Eliasaf, the son of Deuel. From Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. These were chosen from the congregation, leaders of their father's tribes, heads of the divisions in Israel. Then Moses and Aaron took these men who had been mentioned by name, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month, and they recited their ancestry by families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, each one individually. As the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. One of the reasons that scholars cite for the Lord directing Moses to take a census is to show that his promise to Abraham about multiplying his descendants was not forgotten, but was being fulfilled. Though it is true that the Lord made such a promise to Abraham, the census here is not necessary to show this. Abraham's descendants branched out in several directions through both Isaac and Ishmael. Further, the promise to Abraham was also inclusive of those who are spiritually his sons by faith. To brush up on that, I want you to take time to read Galatians chapter 3. As far as Abraham is concerned in this regard, it is Isaac who is the son of promise, not Ishmael. And therefore, the list of physical descendants isn't completely reflective of what is given in the census of Numbers chapter 1. The same is true then with Isaac. He was also given the promise of Abraham concerning many descendants, even as the stars of heaven, 
And again, like Abraham, there are physical descendants that are not of the line of promise, meaning those from his son Esau. So some of them are sons of promise and some of them are not. Therefore, the list of physical descendants from Isaac isn't completely reflective of the lists given here in Numbers chapter 1. However, Jacob was also given the promise of Abraham and Isaac. But unlike them, his sons would all become sons who would share in the promise. They would be a unique group of people known by his name, Israel. The promises made to Israel include what is seen in the census of Numbers chapter 1. As you can see, we need to look carefully over the entire panorama of what the Bible says in order to form our conclusions about a matter. If not, then unfounded claims can be made about spiritual blessings and the like. And this is exactly what Islam has done. They claim their ancestry through Ishmael, and thus they claim the blessings of Abraham. But this is a giant theological error. Each step of scripture is a logical progression intended to lead us to sound theology and a proper understanding of why things are detailed the way they are in the Bible. Our text verse comes from Genesis 35, it's verses 9 through 12. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. So here we have the promise to Israel carefully and meticulously recorded. We can know from Paul's letters that we are sons of Abraham through faith. I referred to that. It's Galatians chapter 3. But just as the Muslims incorrectly make claims about their status, unfortunately, people in the church do it all the time too. The promises to Abraham include a spiritual promise, that of faith, and also a physical line of people who are sons of promise and who were to be given a land inheritance. In the church, these set and clear lines are often obscured or even erased, and extremely poor theology comes out of that as a result. There is never a time in the Bible that the Gentiles are called Israel. Never. Though we may share in the commonwealth of Israel, we remain Gentiles, and no land promise is made to us. We have a heavenly inheritance awaiting us, not an earthly one. It is the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who are called Israel collectively, who are now being gathered at the beginning of the book of Numbers for a census. It is the same group of people who will be detailed throughout all of the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and who have been in exile for the past 2,000 years, but who have been returned to their land once again. Let us not make the error of placing ourselves into their story. We should be content to be included alongside of them in the great unfolding plan of God for the people of the world, a plan which Israel is being used for in order to reveal types and shadows as we continue on our journey now in the book of Numbers. Great things are to be found here because it is an integral part of his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is an introduction. The book of Numbers is the fourth book of the Law of Moses and of the Holy Bible. Its Hebrew name is derived from the fifth word of the book, Bemidbar, which means literally in the wilderness. In Hebrew, the word consists of the letters Bet, Mem, Dalet, Bet, and Resh, which numerically equal 248. That is numerically the same as the Hebrew word for mercy, which is racham, something that will be needed towards Israel during the book. It is also the same numerical value as the phrases Betzalem Elohim, or in the image of God, of Genesis 1 verse 27, and Kol Yehovah Elohim, or the voice of the Lord God, of Genesis 3 verse 8. Both of these in Hebrew have a numerical value of 248. Israel is a nation of people created in the image of God, but will they heed the voice of the Lord their God? That is a major question to be asked concerning them in this book. 
There is dispute as to when this, along with the other four books of Moses, was written. However, the conservative and traditional dating can be figured based on when Solomon's temple was built. By tracing back from that day, as is stated in 1 Kings 6, verse 1, which indicates 480 years from the Exodus, we can assert with relative confidence that the book of Numbers was penned approximately 1445 B.C. There was a 45-day journey to reach Mount Sinai, where the Israelites worked to construct the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, verse 2, it stated, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. This was the beginning of the second year, 345 days after the Exodus, and 300 days since their arrival at Sinai. It would also be the year 2515 Anomundi, or from the creation of the world. As we will see, Numbers will begin its text 30 days later on the first day of the second month of the same year. The book of Leviticus was compiled during a very, very short period of time between the ending of Exodus and somewhere up to about Numbers 10, verse 11. So Leviticus was written in a period of about 50 days. Numbers, however, will last much longer. The trek from the time of setting out from Mount Sinai until arriving at the border of Israel should have been an 11-day journey. However, events will occur which are recorded in Numbers and which will extend this journey out until their 40th year after the Exodus, or exactly 38 years and 9 months. This will be explained in verse 1. Thus, the name Bemidbar, or in the wilderness, is a most appropriate name for the book. They will be in the wilderness during the entire period. The English name for the book is derived from the Greek name given to it, which is Arithamoi. You can hear the term almost sounds like arithmetic. This is translated into Latin as numeri, and thus into English it is known as numbers. The reason for the name will become obvious because detailed numbering of the people will be made during the times of census. And there will be a lot of numbers. As far as the historical context, the book is given to describe the mercy of God upon the Israelites, despite their faithlessness to him. It also presents examples of case law which had not yet been tested, such as a violation of the Sabbath in chapter 15. Numbers also details the period of preparation of the people before they would enter into the land of promise. Concerning a redemptive context, Numbers is filled with pictures of Christ, including his cross. Several key themes which look forward to him are Christ, the cloud, and the fire. He would be the leader of his people. Christ, the water in the desert. He is the eternal fount of life. Christ, the star and the scepter of Israel. He is their king and their ruler. He is the ruler of his people. And Christ, the serpent on the pole. The crucified Savior who became sin so that man could possess new life. Direct references to events and numbers are found interspersed throughout the New Testament. We can look back on the great prophetic fulfillments of these types in numbers with absolute surety that Jesus Christ was and is Messiah. And therefore, he is God come in human flesh. Reading and understanding numbers will also remind us of the sincerity of God's promises and his curses. When he speaks, his word will come to pass. The first book of Moses, Genesis, looked to the work of God, the Father, in Christ, in creation, directing that creation in the initial process of redemption. The second book of Moses, Exodus, then looked to the work of God, the Son, in Christ, in the actual redemptive process, mirroring his own work countless times. The third book of Moses, Leviticus, highlighted the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the purification and sanctification of Christ to the people of God. This fourth book of Moses, Numbers, will highlight the crucified Savior who rose to lead his people in the wilderness of their lives, ever faithful to bring them along the path of life, difficult as it may be, and despite our faithlessness along the way. In all four books, it is Christ, the anticipated Son of God, who is on prominent display. Nothing is more obvious, and in a thousand different ways, this will become evident. When the book of Numbers is complete, the person and the work of Jesus Christ will have been highlighted so many times that you will never look at the book in the same way again. 
If we were to sum up the book of Numbers with one single thought which carries us from Leviticus and then into the continued life of Israel, it would be that the Lord has prepared a path for his people and despite our failures to walk upon it, the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ remains open for his redeemed people. A new book to study seeking out its veins of gold. A new adventure as we seek the Lord's face. 36 chapters set before us ready to unfold. Lessons for all people in every generation and every place. What is in store for us as we begin our trek? Numbers seem so vast and complicated at this time. Will we have a headache even down to our neck? Or will the book come to seem glorious and sublime? Open our eyes, O Lord, to what lies ahead. Direct the understanding of our eyes and of our heart. This is what we petition, looking to be fed. This is what we ask for today as we start. Show us the riches of Christ in this new book. Be with us as we open it, and for its treasures we look. Our second thought today is a census of all the congregation. It's verses 1 through 19. And something I'm going to tell you right now so you don't panic a friend of mine, I email him every day. He helps out this church, and I can't give his name because he'll get upset. But he said that I started reading the Bible some years ago, and I got to Numbers, and I stopped, and I never read it again. And now he's reading a chapter a day, and he also reads my daily devotionals, and he's enjoying the Bible, but he said Numbers is so boring, okay? <laughs> and listen, if you look at it as a bunch of numbers, and you don't understand why those numbers are in there, it will seem that way to you. But I assure you, we're going to go through all kinds of numbers for the first couple of chapters. And they're going to go quickly, but they're long chapters. I mean, you have a thousand verses. The poem is longer than the sermon, literally. Okay? But all of those numbers are coming to a point. And it'll be down the line. So just don't get overwhelmed by all the numbers. Just listen. You don't have to remember the meaning of all the names. I'll give you the meaning of the names today. Okay? And then I'm going to explain why those particular names are given. Don't remember the names. Don't get all frustrated, don't get overwhelmed by numbers. Understand that there is a greater picture that you will be shown, okay? There'll be no tests. There will be no tests. <laughs> now the Lord spoke, Vedaber Yehovah, and spoke Yehovah. Though the Hebrew name of the book is Bemidbar, or in the wilderness, as in most Hebrew Bibles, some call the book Vedaber, or and spoke. They start with the first word, and they call it that instead of Bemidbar. Okay, so some Hebrew Bibles will be different. Despite this, beginning the book with the word and signifies that this is a continuation of what has already been presented. The book of Leviticus closed out, but it didn't really end. The thought process is simply continued with the opening of the book of Numbers. Verse 1 continues to Moses. Despite liberal criticism of the Bible concerning the authorship and dating of Numbers, the book was undoubtedly written by Moses. Several times, Jesus mentions Moses and the prophets when speaking of those who authored the Old Testament books. That is a term speaking of the body of Scripture known at that time. Further, Numbers 21 details the account of the bronze serpent raised on a pole. That's a very exciting passage. We'll get to it in a couple of months, maybe a year, okay? <laughs> Jesus equates that with himself, with these words in John chapter 3. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Referring to Moses in these ways means that either what Jesus says is correct, or the Bible is not the authoritative word of God. Verse 1 continues, in the wilderness, Bemidbar, in the wilderness. It is the fifth word of the book in the Hebrew, and it is the basis for the common Hebrew name. The entire duration of the events of the book are in the wilderness. Verse 1 continues of Sinai. The wilderness of Sinai is where the Israelites have been. They arrived there after the Exodus, and it is where they received the Ten Commandments, and where Moses continued to meet with the Lord, receiving the law. During this time, the sanctuary was constructed and set up, and the laws of Leviticus have been received. They have stayed in this same location during that entire time. It is in this area where the Lord speaks to Moses. Verse 1 continues in the tabernacle of meeting. The translation is poor. 
The Hebrew says be'ohel mo'ed, or in the tent of meeting. It is Moses who meets with the Lord, and it is in the most holy place in the tabernacle, but the location is given as the tent of meeting. The terminology is used because it is in this spot where the Lord meets with Moses to give him instructions. Verse 1 continues, On the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, The Israelites arrived at the wilderness of Sinai on the first day of the third month of the first year. That is found in Exodus 19, verse 1. Therefore, it is now exactly 11 months since their arrival. It is also exactly one month after the sanctuary was raised up, as was seen in Exodus 40, verse 17. This is the book's starting date. For the exact length of time that the book of Numbers details, two key verses must be compared. The first is this verse that we're looking at right now. I'm going to read it again. On the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. The second is Deuteronomy 1, verse 3, which says, Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him as commandments to them. Deducting one date from the other gives us a period of exactly 38 years, nine months, in which the events of numbers occur. In the books of Moses, no name is given of the second month. However, we find its Hebrew name Ziv, Z-I-V, in 1 Kings 6, verse 1. The name signifies brightness, and thus it is figuratively known as the month of flowers. We're at that time of the year where the flowers are coming out in the wilderness. The name was changed from Ziv to Iyar after the Babylonian exile. The second month corresponds to April, May in our calendar. Verse 2, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel. There are several reasons why a census should be taken, especially now that the trek to Canaan was to commence. The people were to depart shortly, and they should have arrived at their destination soon after that. The fact that it would actually be a total of 40 years in the wilderness is irrelevant at this point. When the tribes came into the land promised to them, there would need to be an exact genealogical record for the purposes of land inheritance, something specified during the book of Leviticus. Also, the known strength of each tribe would be needed for the granting of land appropriate to the numbers and for the mustering of the people for wars as well. However, doing the census now instead of at the borders of the land of promise was also necessary so that the people could be properly arranged according to family around the tabernacle as they traveled, thus maintaining order. Verse 2 continues, by their families, by their father's houses. Two distinctions are made here, first by their families and then by their father's households. The terms are somewhat changeable, though. In general, it would be by clans and then by closer relationships. At this point, some scholars include in their comments that this excluded any of the mixed multitude who came out with Israel during the Exodus. This is a very important point for you to remember. However, Exodus Chapter 12 explicitly states that when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it and he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Any of the mixed multitude were to be counted as natives if they met this requirement in either the original Passover or the one that was just observed. Understanding this can help alleviate difficulties in the numbers in the book of Numbers, okay? The reason why that's so important is because scholars have struggled with the numbers of this book. I'm telling you, when I started reading the Bible, my wife knows I read it with a calculator next to me and I checked everything. And you're going to come across some numbers that are absolutely impossible, no matter how you put it. But the dilemma is resolved when you understand that a whole mixed multitude came out with Israel. First, let me give you this. I want to give you this background. When Israel came out, the number was, as we're going to see in next week's sermon, which I'll allude to today, it's 603,550 men from 20 and above. That means there's women, there's children, there's all of these people with them, right? The number is impossible for the 70 people that went down to Egypt over 215 years, okay? But... 
if you include all of the mixed multitude with them, it's not impossible. Those that wanted to observe the Passover, they had the first Passover as a chance to do so. Many of them probably took the opportunity to do so. And then the second Passover has just gone by. And all of those people surely would have done that. Okay? It is going to alleviate all of the problems with numbers. All of them. Okay? It's a very complicated set of numbers. We're not going to go through all of them. I just want you to understand that these scholars that say this are wrong. Okay, the record of how to become a native of Israel is recorded. I've read it to you, and it was taken up by these people. Everybody got that. So, and I'll give you a couple of these difficulties, and then you'll understand why it is possible, not impossible. Okay, verse 2 continues, according to the number of names. The words here probably concern the previous numbering of the people, which was recorded in Exodus 30, verse 12. Thus, the term, according to the number of names, is used. Verse 2 continues, every male individually. All males to the skulls. In other words, the skull represents the man, and so it is a head-by-head count. Verse 3, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their families. The census is solely for the males and only those who are 20 and older. It is then explained by all who are able to go to war. In this, there appears to be an allowance for the aged or infirm, but no specific age is given. At David's time, the men fought until they could no longer fight without regards to age, and it appears that this was the case here. This is seen, for example, in 2 Samuel with these words. When the Philistines were at war with, again with Israel, David and his servants went with him down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall Go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So the king himself fought, and he fought until he could no longer fight. And that is the standard that we expect in Israel as recorded in the Bible. Verse 3 continues, You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Moses and Aaron are called by name to conduct the census, and they would be in charge of anyone selected for counting of each clan and family. This would be a major undertaking, considering the number given in verse 46, which I just said to you a minute ago. In 2011, the U.S. Census Bureau showed Sarasota, Florida totaled 382,448 people. The number of men above 20 alone is more than a third more than that. Imagine somebody telling you, I want you to go out and number every single person tomorrow of Sarasota, Florida and getting them to agree and to do it properly. This is what they were up against. 603,550 men, a third more than the number of people in Sarasota, Florida, they were told to go out and number. This is what they're up against. Verse 4, And with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one ahead of his father's house. There will be 12 tribes counted, and yet the tribe of Levi will not be counted. The way this comes about is that Joseph is divided into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. This is in accord with Joseph's words recorded in Genesis 48, verse 5. If you remember, he blessed the two sons of him, and he said they are reckoned as mine, and therefore they were counted as tribes within Israel. From each of these tribes, one man would be selected as the head of that tribe, ensuring that the census would be conducted in accord with the oversight of Moses and Aaron. These men are selected by the Lord, and they are generally listed in order of birth, mother. Leah first, Rachel next, and then the handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah. Verse 5, these are the names of the men who shall stand with you, from Reuben, Elitzur, the son of Shedeur. The first tribe is Reuben, the first son of Israel. Elitzur means God of the rock. Shedeur means spreader of light. Verse 6, from Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zur Shaddai. Simeon is the second son of Israel. Shalumiel means peace of God. Zura Shaddai means rock of the Almighty. Verse 7, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab. Judah is the fourth son of Israel. Nashon means enchanter or serpent person. Amminadab means my kinsman is noble, or it can also mean people of the prince. 
Nachshon and Aminadav are included in the genealogy of King David in Ruth chapter 4, and then they, along with Judah, are listed in that of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 8, from Issachar, Nathanael, the son of Zuar. Issachar is the ninth son of Israel, but the fifth son of Leah. It is interesting that his name is derived from what was said by Leah when her son Issachar was born. She said, Natan Elohim Sekari, or God has given me my wages. The leader of the tribe, Natanel, fits the naming of his tribe where she said, Natan Elohim. Natanel means given of God. Zuar means little one. Verse 9, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Halon. Zebulun is the tenth son of Israel, but the sixth son of Leah. Eliab means my God is father. Halon means very strong. Verse 10, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. Now, instead of selecting a man from Joseph, the eleventh son of Israel, and the first son of Rachel, the line of Joseph is divided. First from Joseph is Ephraim, the younger son of Joseph, but whom Jacob placed first in his blessing. Elishama means God has heard. Amihud means my kinsman is glorious. Verse 10 continues from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Hadazur. Manasseh is the first son of Joseph. Gamaliel means reward of God. Pedazur means the rock has ransomed. Verse 11 from Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni, actually. Benjamin is the twelfth son of Israel and the second son of Rachel. Abidan means father of judgment. Gideoni means feller, as in one who cuts down. Verse 12 from Dan, Ahizer, the son of Amishadai. Dan is the fifth son of Israel and the first son born to Bilhah, the handmaid. Ahizer means brother of help. Amishadai means my kinsman is the Almighty. Verse 13, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okran. Asher is the eighth son of Israel and the second son of Zilpah. He is listed out of the ordinary birth order according to birth mother. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But this is because of how the tribes will ultimately be placed around the sanctuary in their midst. He is mentioned before his older brother, born to Zilpah, for this reason. Pagiel means occurrence of God. Okron means troubled. Verse 14 from Gad, Eliasaf, the son of Deuel. Gad is the seventh son of Israel and the first born to Zilpah. Eliasaf means God has added. Deuel means known of God. As a side note to consider, this same person is listed as Reuel in Numbers 2, verse 14. The letters Dalit and Resh are extremely similar in appearance, and so they are often interchanged. Verse 15, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. The list ends with Naphtali, the sixth son of Israel, and the second born to Zilpah. Ahira means brother of purpose, Enan means having eyes. It is hard to be dogmatic about Hebrew names, and the meaning may vary with translators' choice of root words. But the 12 men selected by name by the Lord have names which closely reflect the work of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. Listen to these names and think of Jesus as I read them. These are the people that were selected to do the counting. God of the rock, peace of God, serpent person, given of God, my God is Father, God is heard, reward of God, Father of judgment, brother of help, occurrence of God, God has added, brother of purpose. And more curiously, I didn't even think of this until I think it was Wednesday morning at four o'clock when I was practicing this sermon, I suddenly realized there's another pattern, okay? The names of the leaders' fathers are closely reflected in the naming of Israel in relation to Christ Jesus. Think of Israel in relation to Christ with the names of the fathers. Spreader of light, they were to be called a light to the nations. Rock of the Almighty, they are the rock of the Lord that goes out on his battles. My kinsmen, think of Israel, my kinsmen, Jesus, my kinsmen is noble or people of the prince. They are the people of the prince of God. Little one, they're a very small nation, they're called little elsewhere. Very strong. Despite being little, they're a very strong group of people. This one really gets it. My kinsman is glorious, right? Think of Jesus in relation to Israel. The rock has ransomed. Jesus Christ, the rock has ransomed his people. 
Feller, as in one who cuts down. They cut down their enemies. My kinsman, even more astonishing, my kinsman is the Almighty. The people of Israel, their kinsman is the Almighty God. Troubled. That sure fits Israel, doesn't it, in relation to Jesus? Known of God. They are known completely by God. And then finally, having eyes. Well, how does that fit in relation to Jesus? Having eyes but they do not see, having ears, but they do not hear. Everything about the names of the fathers reflects Israel in relation to Jesus. It's rather astonishing. Verse 16, these were chosen from the congregation. Apart from the names, this verse has the first new word in the Bible found in the book of Numbers, kari, or chosen. It's an adjective, not a verb, and so it would be better translated as the named or the called. They were leaders well-known from their congregation and called by God as such. And so they are, verse 16 continues, leaders of their father's tribes, heads of the divisions in Israel. In their capacity as the called, they are considered as the leaders of their father's tribes of the 12 sons of Israel. As a secondary designation, they are Rashe Afe Yisrael, or literally heads of the thousands of Israel. However, thousands simply describes the highest number specified, and so we would say divisions. Verse 17, then Moses and Aaron took these men who had been mentioned by name. As instructed in verse 3, both Moses and Aaron went forth and identified those called by God specifically. It is these 14 men who went forth verse 18, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month. On the same day as he was instructed to accomplish the task, as seen in verse 1, Moses went forth, got Aaron, rounded up the twelve called men, and together they called forth the entire congregation to conduct what the Lord had determined. Imagine now calling 340,000 people from Sarasota and saying, we want you all to come there. Now, almost a third more, 603,550 men, and they've got to get them together apart from all their wives and all their children and everybody that's distracting them, and they've got to count them. Imagine the amount of work that Moses had to go through with Aaron and these 12 men. When we read it, we don't think of actually how awesome this responsibility was. If you think about it in actual numbers, just in relation to Sarasota, I mean, we stretch and we're crowded here, aren't we? We stretch from Bradenton all the way down to, uh, uh, what is it, Fort Myers or um, uh, what's the last part? Northport, thank you. And then we go all the way out to Mayaka and you'd have to get all of those people gathered together. Oh no, I'm sorry, you're only 19, go away. Think of the work that they had to do in order to, it really is astonishing. So where was I? Um, Verse uh, 18, right, continues. Yes, and they recited their ancestry by families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and above, each one individually. The census is taken of the males, 20 and above, each according to his skull, meaning a head count. And they recited their ancestry. This would have been by tribe, then by family within the tribe, and then finally by the father's house within the tribe. It is these records which would be maintained carefully from this point on. It is certain that each family had kept a genealogical record up to this point which could be referred to. In the gathering of this information, the genealogy of all of Israel's great people would have been known. But the listing is especially important in tracing out the most important genealogy of all, that of Christ Jesus. From this point on, the records would be carefully maintained as is evidenced in the books of the Chronicles and even in the genealogical records of Christ, which are found in Matthew and Luke. Verse 19, as the Lord commanded Moses. This is an important closing verse for today in a couple of ways. The words reflect the general sentiment of the conduct of Moses' affairs. Words such as this are noted about Moses' obedience from time to time, showing his faithfulness to the Lord. This includes his faithfulness to carrying out the census directed here. The words, as the Lord commanded Moses, mean that Moses had not undertaken the census on his own. Despite being chosen as the leader, he had not thought to magnify himself in such a manner. He simply led the people without caring about the size of those he was leading. It is therefore a statement of humility of Moses. It is for reasons such as this that he will be called in Numbers 12, very humble more than all men who are on the face of the earth. On the contrary, the words are then to be contrasted to those concerning David. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 24 and a parallel passage which is found in 1 Chronicles 21, David took a census without being directed by the Lord and without seeking the Lord's approval. It was an act of pride which ended in a great loss of life. If I remember correctly, it was 70,000 people died in a single day. As the king of Israel, David was instructed to read the words of the law every day of his life. That is found in Deuteronomy chapter 17 with these words. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. David either didn't read his Bible or he failed to pay attention while he was reading it. Either way, the lesson of Moses did not transfer to him. He left the word behind and it ended as a sad part of his story. But the failings of David in this situation led to other important developments in redemptive history. And at his death, the affair of the illegal census was not counted against him. The only failing that is noted as a permanent stain on his record is found in 1 Kings chapter 15 with these words, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, meaning he took another man's wife and had Uriah killed. In speaking of Moses, however, a stain upon his record is recorded for us as well. What he did is to be found right here in the book of Numbers, and it was something that kept him from ever entering into the land of promise. That is coming soon to a sermon near you. The Bible doesn't hide the faults of its heroes. Instead, it carefully records them to lead us to directing our eyes to the true hero with a capital H who has no faults at all. Verse 19 finishes us up today with, So he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Again, the wilderness of Sinai is mentioned explicitly here as it was in verse 1. This then is given to contrast it from another census which is going to be recorded in Numbers chapter 26 and which is said to have been conducted in the plains of Moab by the Jordan. By that time, very few of the people who are counted in this census will be left alive, literally a mere handful. And of them, only two only two of all of these people that are being numbered will actually enter into the land of promise. It would be for a new generation, not counted in those 20 and above, to enter the land and carry on the mission, which should have been just a month or so away for the people at this point in the story. So you know the word number is found about 265 times in the Bible, and of those, about 108 are found in this book. There's a lot of counting, a lot of detail, and a jillion names to sort through. If it seems like a daunting task, I want you to remember that when we started Leviticus, that did too, didn't it? And yet, that turned out to be a pile of gold sitting in a golden bowl. Surely Numbers is going to be the same way too. For now, let us be happy to have entered into this book, which is logically placed right here by our loving Creator to show us hints and shadows of the glory which lies ahead in Christ Jesus. As we wind through its pages, we already have the assurance that he is to be found here. Wonderful references to him are openly and explicitly cited in the New Testament right out of the book of Numbers. And so we can be sure that the few examples that they have provided will be complemented by many, many others which have not been. Indeed, all of Scripture is given to lead us to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so as we close today, let me take just a minute to explain to you what Christ means to each person and why it's so important that you understand who he is and how what he has done will affect your eternal destiny. Jesus Christ is prefigured in all of these books. He's shown all the way throughout the Old Testament, either implicitly or explicitly. You know, the virgin shall bring forth a son from Isaiah 7:14. That's explicit, but there are other implicit references of him. Always, 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 Jesus is there being shown because he is the answer to the problem that we all face. Every single one of us faces that problem, and it is sin. God is infinitely holy. He is without any sin at all, and we have sin in our lives. We have inherited sin from our Father. We have committed sin, 
in things we have done in our life. So people, you know, you ask somebody, have you ever sinned? And I've had people several times when I've witnessed to them say, no, I've never sinned. Well, yeah, I've, I've had people do that. And I say, well, guess what? It doesn't matter because you've already inherited the sin of Adam. So you're already condemned. So you might as well stop lying and tell the truth, right? All it takes is one sin. That's all it takes. If you've committed one sin, you've broken the whole law according to the book of James. And so you are eternally separated from the infinitely holy father. But Jesus Christ, who is in all of these pictures here, all of those names that we went through that point to Jesus, those are things that he did or is going to do for us. He is the resolution to the problem that we face. He came without sin. He was born of a woman, but without a human father. And so he was capable of taking away our sin. But is he qualified? He was born under this law that God gave to Israel. And he had to live that law perfectly in order to take away our sin. So he's capable. The gospels show that he is qualified. He never sinned. He never violated his father's law. And then he gave that perfect life up in exchange for ours, something which is allowed under the law of Moses. It's called the doctrine of substitution. I have sinned. He has not. I should put him on this side. He is not. I have. And we, we exchange. He became the serpent person that's reflected in there. Why? Because he's the serpent on the pole, which is being prefigured in this book of Numbers. Everything is showing us Jesus Christ. Everything. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what the Bible is proclaiming, and he is the only way that it can happen. No other way is available to humanity. No other way. We started the book of Hebrews this week. Very involved first few days of study. It's going to get shorter. These first few are very important verses. But in the book of Hebrews, it is absolutely as clear as crystal that there is one way to be reconciled to God the Father. One and that is Jesus Christ. Without him, you will not stand in paradise. And with him, you will be there forever and forever and forever. I can't even imagine what it's like. You know what? I was walking this morning over to my father's house because the light came on when the power is off. It was very bizarre. But I walked over there and I was thinking I could smell the mango tree, you know, and all of the, the fresh rain that had come down. I said, look, it is so wonderful. It is so absolutely beautiful with this cool breeze coming off of the bay and it was just half of a moon up there. Everything was bathing in moonlight. And I thought, I can't wait to be out of here. I can't wait. As beautiful as this is, there is so much trouble. There's so much terror. There's so much dirtiness in this world. What we talked about that guy doing to young women in the prophecy update today, I can't wait to be out of here despite the beauty because what he has will have none of that and all of the good. We won't stub our toe in the darkness we won't get cancer and die. We won't have our hip pop out or have a stroke. It is coming if you will give yourself to Jesus Christ, if you'll simply believe that God sent him to take away your sin. That's all that he asks of you. I received Jesus Christ. I believe that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's the point of the book of Numbers. As difficult as some of these passages is going to be, it all makes sense when you put it in the the lens of Jesus Christ. So as I said, we've got this, we've got a couple more very long sermons with re repetition, repetition. You think, why is that? You're going to find out and you're going to say, oh, I get it. But it's going to take about five sermons to get there, okay? Our closing verse comes from John chapter 5, verse 39. It's something I was referring to when we were talking about Calvinism after Jim closed us today. You searched the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Jesus said it right to the leaders of Israel. They testify of me. What scriptures? It's what we're looking at right now because there was no New Testament and yet everything testifies of Jesus. That's why we go through the law. That's why we're going through these books which most people couldn't care deadly about. Next week we got another sermon, long one, 34 or 35 verses. Numbers 1, 20 through 54. Surely it will all eventually become clear and make sense this one is entitled Men of War, Offense and Defense, okay? That'll be our second number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there carefully leading you to the land of promise. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I imagine you're going to hear that quite a few more times before we finish up the book of Numbers. I got a poem for you. It's actually pretty short, being 19 verses. It goes quickly. A census in the wilderness. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting, these things he was relaying, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, take it carefully by their families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, every male individually. From 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies, so shall you do as to you I tell. And with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house, as I describe. These are the names of the men who shall stand with you, from Reuben, Elisur, the son of Shedeur, from Simeon, Shlumiel, the son of Zur, Shaddai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, for sure. From Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulon, Eliab, the son of Helon, him for sure, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, from Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai, from Dan, Ahizer, the son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron, from Gad, Eliasaf, the son of Deuel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan, these are chosen, as to you I tell. These were chosen from the congregation as the word did compel, leaders of their father's tribes, heads of the divisions in Israel. Then Moses and Aaron took these men who had been mentioned by name, and they assembled all of the congregation together on the first day of the second month. Together they came, and they recited their ancestry by families, by their father's houses, as instructed accordingly, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, each one individually. As the Lord commanded Moses by and by, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives, they would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it and to our lives daily it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a good start to this book. It's uh, nice to know the context of what we're speaking about, the year that things happened, and uh, who the author is, and ultimately who the real author is, who is you through Moses, and we thank you for the surety of this word. Though people throughout the years have tried to diminish it, to tear it apart, to say that it isn't written by the person it says, or it doesn't point to Jesus in the ways that we proclaim, it does, and it is. And Lord, we are certain of this, we have confidence of it, and we certainly will look forward to whatever comes out of this book in the months and maybe year ahead. And Lord, we have those names that we mentioned at the beginning of this service today. We've got Brother Bob up in New York who's in a hospital with a stroke. Brother Graham in Scotland with a stroke. I believe he's back at home. And we also have Darla who is right here in Sarasota with a hip completely out of place, Lord. And the other people that we mentioned and the catastrophes which are going on around the world, which are affecting people, we certainly pray for them. Lord, just be with your people, guide them, give them comfort in their times of affliction. And yes, we are in a wilderness and at times we do seem like we're lost, but you are there with us and you are leading us to the land of promise. And we can bank on that. So thank you for that. We love you. We praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.